And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Before we start, a warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence from the beginning, and it also contains clips of pretty racist language. So if you're not keen on hearing that or you're listening around kids, consider skipping this one. I'm Dana Balutz, and this is Kerning Cultures. Okay, to start then, Helena, I guess if you could just introduce yourself, tell us your name and uh, what you do, or like however it is that you want to be introduced for the purpose of the story. Um, Helena O'Day, the oldest daughter for Alex O'Day. Um, I don't know, I don't like these. Sorry, guys. <laughs> A couple of months ago, producer Alex Atek and I called Helena at her home in Orange County, California, to talk about her dad, Alex O'Day. Um, you know, he always was working a lot. So I always do remember, you know, in the mornings he would like, I would get ready for school and he would come and say, okay, have a good day and I'll see you tonight. And it was always like, okay, big kisses to dad and then couldn't wait for him to get home. She remembers how on weekends he'd go out fishing and sometimes he'd arrive home with something to cook for dinner which would get mixed reviews in the Aude household. My mom would get us all ready. Um, we would be all dressed and cute, and he would say, okay, we're going to go out to dinner. I guess he told my mom that, so she would get us all dressed up. We would be all dressed up, and my dad would come back from a fishing trip with this huge fish. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd expect her to, like, clean it, and they'd be like, he forgot that he had said, you know, we're going out. <laughs> or something that he was going to take us out. But he would bring this big fish home and she was like, but the kids are clean. <laughs> and he taught us how to swim. And actually, he taught my middle sister and I how to swim. My little sister, of course, she didn't get the opportunity to spend um, any time with him, really. She was just a maybe a year old, a year and a half at the time. On October 11th, 1985, at around 11 a.m., Hugh Mooney, a lieutenant area commander at the Santa Ana Police Department in Southern California, was at his desk filling out paperwork when his phone rang. I got a call that uh, a bombing had occurred on 17th Street in my area. So I drove up there. Um, the streets had been blocked off. There was debris scattered across 17th Street, which is a four-lane highway. I did enter the building. It was a second floor, and it was completely devastated. All the windows had been blown out, uh, walls knocked down, doors blown open, furniture in disarray. It was a significant explosion. Inside the building was the regional office of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, where Helena's dad, Alex, worked. He'd been the first to arrive at the office that morning, and as he turned the latch to unlock the front door, a tripwire detonated a pipe bomb on the other side. He died in the hospital two hours later. Alex Aude was 41 years old and left behind his wife and three young daughters. Seven other people were injured in the blast. I was a cop for 37 years altogether, and I'm a Vietnam combat veteran, so I've been to you know, watch B-52 strikes or bombing runs and battles and machine gun fire and rockets and mortars and artillery and stuff. So I've seen lots of explosions. <laughs> so you'd seen things on a similar scale before, but maybe not, just not in America? Yes, yeah. 
When he arrived, he had his officers tape off the area so that the sheriff's department could start to gather evidence from what was left of the building. Meanwhile, as Hugh was setting up a command post on the other side of the street, he noticed this helicopter landing in the field nearby. And uh, some guys in suits got out. Turned out to be FBI and LAPD uh, terrorism task force. And they, uh, they let us know that they'd been following suspects all the way from New York out to California and that they're responsible for some bombings back in, uh, on the East Coast. And uh, that's who they suspected had done this. A couple of months earlier, a bomb had been left at the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee offices, Alex's same organization, but in Boston. And the FBI suspected it might be the same people behind the bombing in California. It was a bomb at the same organization in two different locations. Did they tell you, like, did they give you names there and then? Yes, they did. They gave us the names of uh, Manning and Green, I think, were the names they gave us at the time. Robert Manning and Andy Green, American citizens in their 20s and 30s, who had been involved in far-right Zionist groups for years. They were religious fanatics, who had already had criminal records both in the U.S. and in Israel. Manning had a reputation as a thug, and he'd been arrested a decade earlier for a bomb attack on a Palestinian accountant's home. In the incident, the accountant wasn't home that day, but the bomb nearly killed his two-year-old daughter. Andy Green, the other guy Hugh mentioned, he had been involved in the Zionist far-right movement since he was a teenager. Among his priors were two arrests in the 1970s for violent terrorist attacks on Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem. There was another suspect, too, Keith Fuchs, and at the time, he'd only just been released from an Israeli prison for a brutal gun attack on a highway in Palestine. But after Alex Aude's murder, none of these guys were arrested. At 7 a.m. the morning of the bombing, they got back on a plane from Los Angeles airport and left, first to New York, then to settlements in occupied Palestine. Two of them are said to still live there today. 37 years later, nobody has been arrested in connection with the murder of Alex Aude. You know, you had these FBI agents coming to the scene on the day and they gave you an indication that they had suspects already. How did it go unsolved? Uh, <laughs> interesting question. It should not have. Uh, clearly, there was enough evidence to arrest them on that day. In our episode today, the story of Alex Aude, a Palestinian academic, poet, father, and community leader. Our story is about his unsolved murder and the oversight of law enforcement when foreign policy objectives and political bias are more important than finding justice. Here's producer Alex Atak. Alex Aude was born in 1944 in a village called Shifna in Palestine. Um, which is like a little city over near Ramallah. From what my mom tells me, just a carefree kid and uh, grew up to love political science and education. He just wanted to learn and, and teach. Again, that's his eldest daughter, Helena. In his early 20s, Alex left Palestine to study engineering at university in Cairo. But when he tried to go back home after the 1967 war, he was blocked from entering the country by the Israeli government. So instead, he moved to Amman. After being in Amman for a while, his sister, Ellen, was like, well, why don't you just come here? So that's how it came about that he came to California. That was 1972. 
And when he arrived, he taught Arabic and Middle East history at a local community college, waiting tables at a restaurant on the side to make ends meet. And around this time, after the 1967 war, the American government had a very warm relationship with Israel, which in some ways led to a feeling of hostility against Arab Americans, or really anyone who was publicly pro-Palestine. Oh, it was very pro-Israel. Uh, it was very hard for any Arab, let alone Palestinian, I think, to, to raise their voice very much. You never read anything in the paper that said something good. This is Reverend Darrell Myers. He's a longtime friend of Alex O'Day and an ally to the Arab American community in California. He worked with Alex on a bunch of campaigns and community projects back in the 70s and 80s. You could not say much about word the word Palestinian. I remember even in some of the meetings that I had, you had to be very careful, especially with other people, of what you were saying. Because Palestinians, you know, had gotten such a bad rap in our media. And it wasn't just the media either. Arab Americans and pro-Palestine activists were being spied on by government agencies too. This is Alex Alde talking about it on a local TV station in California. A great many of them have been under surveillance. Uh, some of them have been visited by FBI. Uh, and the FBI agents have questioned them on uh, terrorism and uh, PLO association. Uh, I'm sure there are so many cases that we don't hear about because uh, when someone been harassed or uh, questioned by FBI, most likely he will be reluctant to, to talk about it. So in 1980, a group of influential Arab Americans got together and founded a group to try and push back against some of this discrimination. It was called the ADC. ADC, it's the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Alex joined in 1982 and became West Coast Regional Director just a year later. He didn't like how people back then were treating Arabs. So his... By joining the ADC, he just wanted discrimination against Arabs to stop. He still had his day job as a professor of political science at a university in Southern California. But he started devoting more and more time to the ADC, spending his evenings and weekends writing newsletters and newspaper op-eds, or helping Arabs in his community with things like language classes. He became known locally for his regular media appearances, speaking out for the Palestinian cause. This is him speaking on a Southern California radio show in the early 1980s. Well, the thing is, by calling the Palestinian leadership a bunch of murderers, that's not a very kind words for people who are determined and fighting for the liberation of their homeland. Once he joined then, that's when he became more vocal in the community and everybody knew him. And my dad was real social. Even to this day, I have people that come up to me and tell me, oh, your dad, he came to my store, he bought this, and your dad's favorite dessert was this, and my parents used to have this dessert here, and the stories start coming in, then I get like a little sad because I'm like, wow, it seems like you guys knew my dad a little bit more than I did, or you got to interact with him a little bit more than I did. While he was a teacher at Cal State University, he shared an apartment with his brother, Sammy. It was within the walls of that tiny apartment that I got to know Alex 
and his obsessions. This is Sammy speaking at Alex's memorial service. I discovered that my brother was obsessed with the love of his family, the love of his homeland, the love of his people, and the love of his heritage. He was obsessed with moderation and the need for communication. And he was obsessed with optimism. I didn't know anybody who didn't like Alex. He was, as I say, really a, a very uh, outgoing guy without being oppressive, you know, without being bossy or anything of that sort. And I would remember in the mornings, uh, sometimes I'd get a phone call, Daryl, this is Alex, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it was always very uh, friendly in that way, and, and uh, he was very loved in the community. One of his big picture missions in life was to bring together Jewish and Arab communities in the U.S. He would regularly speak at synagogues. He helped run a group called the Cousins Club, which was kind of this dialogue group that brought together people from both communities in California. Why was that so important to him? Well, because I think for one thing, uh, it was often framed as uh, Palestinian or Arab versus Jew. And uh, he knew that there were many Jews who had lived in Palestine who uh, were not necessarily Zionists who wanted to see this happen to uh, Palestinian uh, neighbors in that community. But there were people who were watching what he was doing and didn't like it. In the early 1980s, he started to get death threats at his home almost every day. So they were, my parents were getting calls, threatening calls saying, you know, you better watch out. We are coming for you. We're going to we're going to kill you. You're going to die. And my dad always went to the police and he, you know, filed a report, but they said, it's just a threat. There's nothing they can do about it. And my mom would tell him, you know, please, you have kids, you know, think of the kids and uh, think of us, you know, he would just be, he would tell her, listen, this is my country. This is what I believe in. I'm going to believe and stand up for what I believe in. The group that many suspect were behind those death threats was called the JDL, the Jewish Defense League. This is their founder, Mia Kahane, talking at a press conference in 1978 about taking over Palestinian land by force. There will be settlements. There will be the retaking of Jewish property. And if Arabs attempt to stop us, there will be armed violence to protect Jewish rights and obligations. They're a violent far-right group which sprung up in the US after the 1967 war. We cannot coexist with, with the Arabs. They are in danger to us. They must go. Just over a decade later, the JDL were responsible for 17 terrorist attacks in the United States, according to the FBI. The journalist David Sheen has followed them and the Kahanis movement for over a decade. The Jewish Defense League had a policy, if there was any act of terrorism against Jews or any aggression against Israelis somewhere in the world, that they would respond, they would uh, take revenge times a million. The pain of a Jew must be your pain. And so several days before Alex Oda's assassination. Palestinian terrorists have hijacked an Italian cruise liner in the Mediterranean and are threatening to start executing American passengers. A group of Palestinians took over a boat, cruise liner. Officials here say at least seven men carried out the hijack, placing explosives around the ship. The Palestinian hijackers of the cruise ship are demanding the release of 50 Palestinians in Israel's jails. 
top of the list. And they killed a Jewish man on board. We want you to know that our father, Leon Klinghopper, was a devoted husband, a loving father, and a kind and generous friend to many people. And so because of this act, this murder, the JDL decided, well, we are going to now murder an Arab American in response. The night before, I happened to go to his office uh, after getting off from my work at my church, and I, I needed some materials that I knew Alex had that I could use for a study group or a class. This is Alex Oday's friend, Reverend Daryl Myers again. And uh, I get in there, and the room is filled with cameras and recorders. They were there to get a statement from Alex about that cruise liner that had been hijacked in Europe. By now, this kind of thing was routine for him. And he told the news that he condemned the hijacking, and he made it clear that, of course, he was against terrorism in general. Violence breeds violence, he said. Daryl got what he needed from the ADC office and left Alex to speak to the news cameras. You know, he, he had just finished, I'm sure, a long day and a very trying day with the interviews from the media. I remember his, you know, trying to help give me what I needed that night, what I went there for, and I uh, thanked him for it and uh, thought I would uh, come back and see him another couple of days from now. He kissed me goodbye for school and told me have a good day. And I knew something was wrong when nobody came to pick me up from school. It was about uh, mid-morning that morning of, of the 11th of October. And um, the phone in my office rings and, uh, Daryl, this is Zach, Zach Sadawi. Our office has been hit and Alex is dead. And I don't remember much more that he said. I, we, I, I was so stunned, as I'm sure he was, to say it. The day of the funeral, I just, I remember so many people, um, so many people, and, and actually I can still, you know, when, when I get asked these questions, I still hear my mom just crying uncontrollably, like, you know, she did not believing that my dad was gone. And it wasn't until, you know, I saw the casket that I was like, you know, I will never see my dad again. We had the funeral there at the um, Catholic church in town and and uh, it was really a very a moving event. One of the defining moments was when the head of the Ethnic Musicology Center at UCLA played on the oud. And I remember that just sort of spoke the whole hour of what this was about. It was something that you feel deeply about because of the loss of uh, this friend of so many of us, Alex, and a respected friend. Uh, but sometimes the, the, the music of the oud spoke things that the words could not express.
In the days after Alex Alde's funeral, his death didn't get very much attention in the media. And the head of the Jewish Defense League came out with a statement. Herb Rubin, the head of the Jewish Defense League, spews his usual bile, telling the press, no Jew or American should shed one tear for the destruction of a PLO front. PLO front. The person or persons responsible for the bombing deserves our praise, saying, I have no tears from Mr. Ojang. He got exactly what he deserves. So, of course, that's, you know, t- you know, trying to take credit for it essentially without saying something that makes them culpable legally. The founder of the JDL, Mir Kahane, was later questioned about the murder at a press conference. Be very, very careful when you say that JDL killed Oded in... That's what the, the FBI said. Excuse me, you said... FBI, FBI, I got my information from the FBI. Just let me tell you something. That the FBI never said it, because if the FBI had said it, it would have been slapped with a multi-trillion dollar libel suit. It stated that it has reason to believe. He says it himself. The FBI did suspect people involved with the Jewish Defense League from the beginning. The three guys we mentioned earlier, Andy Green, Keith Fuchs, and Robert Manning. The FBI had been surveilling them even before Alex Alday was killed, in connection with another bombing attempt at the ADC office in Boston months earlier. They'd followed the three men as they flew across the country from New York to Los Angeles, with a layover in Minnesota, flights Andy Green had paid for on his credit card. And then, at the scene, they found evidence to suggest that the Boston bombing and the Santa Ana bombing were carried out by the same people. This is Santa Ana Police Lieutenant Hugh Mooney again. They got pieces of the bomb, and they got the bomb's signature, which would be the, the specific components of wire and, and other triggering devices. And uh, the FBI matched those later to the, uh, the bombings on the East Coast. So it was the same signature, it was the same bomb maker using the same materials. So that was very significant. It, it was a direct collection, connection to the uh, East Coast bombings. But by the next day, Fuchs and Manning were gone. They'd left Los Angeles on a regular commercial flight back to New York. I wonder, like, in an ideal world, what should have happened in that investigation from day one that didn't happen? A warrant should have been issued. They should have been arrested when they were relocated in uh, New York. They should have been charged, and uh, Mm. they were not. It sounds like it's quite a simple, really, uh, like it should have been quite a simple thing to do. It's not like they left the country that day, like they were still in America. Right. Yeah, the uh, the FBI had, the uh, terrorism, anti-terrorism task force had two weeks when they could have gotten a warrant and uh, search warrants and they could have arrested the individuals and they were not allowed to do that. What was stopping them from issuing that warrant and taking them into custody? Uh, My understanding from what I was told by the New York police officer was that the U.S. attorney uh, said to wait and wouldn't tell them why, just said wait. And they were convinced, their experienced investigators, they were convinced they had enough evidence for a warrant, for an arrest warrant. They had no understanding of why, you know, clearly these people were implicated in three bombings and uh, they should have been arrested and charged. There's certainly enough evidence to tie them to it. But uh, for some reason they weren't. They returned to Israel. After the break, the suspects flee to Israel and the fight to have them extradited back to the US begins. 
Keith Fuchs and Andy Green left the US for Israel in 1986 and have lived there ever since. The third suspect, Robert Manning, was extradited to the US in 1994, but that was for a different murder. He's serving a life sentence in a prison in Arizona. The ADC have petitioned the US government for years to have Andy Green, who, by the way, goes by a different name now, Baruch Ben Youssef, and Keith Fuchs extradited to the US to face charges. But it's been an uphill battle. In letters, friends of Alex Alde and the ADC routinely requested updates from the FBI. We got access to these letters in a Freedom of Information request. For years, the FBI would just give them the same boilerplate response. Almost every letter a cut and paste. That the investigation is still underway, it's being handled by their finest investigators, that they couldn't give any more detail, but rest assured the FBI is making every effort to quote, resolve this matter and bring this case to a prosecutable stage. Alex's brother, Sammy Alde, had a habit of calling the FBI every week to try and find out more. This is him speaking to KPFK Radio in 1986. I've been talking at least once a week with the investigators, both at the Santana Police and the FBI, about the, where do we stand now today, and uh, I'm getting the same answer over and over. We're still analyzing and gathering data. We're still analyzing and gathering data. About a month ago... Uh, they told me that, you know, they're down to investigating names and they're getting closer. But as you and I know, so far, there's no arrest and it doesn't look like there's an arrest imminent any time in the very near future. As far as my own personal satisfaction or the family's feeling on the subject, naturally, we are somewhat disappointed because, uh, you know, we feel that between the FBI and the Santa Ana police and the Orange Sheriff, they have enough resources to... Uh, be a heck of a lot closer to an arrest if not already had been done. But behind closed doors, the FBI were hitting roadblocks. In 1987, the FBI's assistant director sent a memo to one of his colleagues complaining that when they shared information with the Israeli intelligence, the Israelis were failing to act on it. Hugh Mooney told me that about five years after the murder, he was at a meeting at the FBI's offices in Los Angeles. He said there were a couple of New York detectives there, as well as somebody from the State Department. We were going over different items of how we could, you know, theories of how we could make an arrest or affect an arrest or bring them to justice. And uh, at that point, we had no uh, cooperation from the Israeli government. And uh, then a State Department official, he said, you should just give this up. It's bigger than, than your jurisdiction. It was indication that the State Department was more powerful than the FBI and Department of Justice. And they were calling the shots and saying no. You know, just leave it alone. It's not going anywhere. Like, don't get in the way of the politics of it. Correct. Mm. It's very frustrating because my job as a police officer is very clear. You know, if you commit a crime, we investigate, we gather evidence, we arrest you and prosecute you. And suddenly there's people, international terrorists who are beyond prosecution for unknown reasons. And, uh, you know, it was none of our business. We wouldn't understand. And it's... uh, it's rather frustrating. Has it happened in other cases where you've had kind of political intervention and you haven't been able to move further with a case? Not for me, no. It's, it's never happened before. So even though the FBI might have felt like they had solid evidence to at least make an arrest, it was being reported in the media that Manning, Fuchs and Ben Youssef slash Green were prime suspects. The Israelis were just failing to cooperate. 
The FBI even put out a reward of $1 million for information on the case that would lead to an arrest. There's this moment at a press conference over a decade after the bombing, in January 1988, when Israel's Prime Minister at the time, Benjamin Netanyahu, is taking questions from the floor. And somebody asks him directly about Alex O'Day's case. Sort of following up on the Scheinbaum question, there's another case of Alex O'Day. Uh, who was murdered in California. He was the West Coast director of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. And the two suspects in this case are apparently in uh, either Israel or settlements um, of Israel in Kiryat Arba. Uh, will the government of Israel begin cooperating to seek justice in this case? Thank you. Uh, I am um, not familiar with the uh, with extradition requests uh, concerning the murder of uh, Alex Ode, but... Uh, I'm sure if those would be brought before me, uh, I would uh, look into them. Again, we have a problem for lack of an instrument, of a legal instrument. I assure you that our policy is to cooperate fully with the murderers. We don't make a distinction, sir, between the murderers of Arabs or Jews and innocent blood is innocent blood. He says that their policy is to cooperate with American law enforcement. But up until today, that is still not what Israel is doing. Over the years, the ADC has continued to lobby for this extradition, and they've effectively been ignored. According to David's reporting, the US hasn't indicted Burke Ben Yosef or Keith Fuchs because they claim they don't have enough evidence. They told him they'd need a solid witness who can testify that either men admitted to the murder. It's a really high bar to reach. And even if the FBI could get there, there's the bigger obstacle of pro-Israel bias in American politics. First of all, it's political. And Political means political. Look at the political situation. You know, we have government after government in the United States that is so psychophatic to Israel that no matter what it does, no matter what red line it crosses, no matter how much apartheid, how much ethnic cleansing, it's just like, yes, please give us more, more, more of this. Irv Rubin, the ultra-Zionist leader of the Jewish Defense League, the one that made that statement a day after Alex's murder, was arrested in 2001 for planning to blow up a mosque in L.A., he died by suicide in prison a year later. As we mentioned earlier, Robert Manning had been in prison since 1994. But when David came to this story, there wasn't a lot of new reporting on what had happened to the two remaining suspects in the Alex Alday case, Keith Fuchs and Baruch Ben Youssef, the guy that used to go by Andy Green. So David started looking into it. I was like, okay, well, what happened to these dudes? And so, of course, now we're in the internet era, so I can search and find out what they've been up to for the last 30 five odd years. And then I realized, contrary to my expectation, they were not hiding in some small town somewhere doing some Joe jaw where no one noticed. They were firmly at the vanguard of the far right all throughout ever since. Barak Ben Youssef worked as a lawyer defending various far right Zionist causes. This is him speaking to the Associated Press in 2004 about the then-Israeli Prime Minister's plan to remove 17 Jewish settlements from Gaza. Prime Minister's a traitor. He uh, has committed treason against the, the, the foundation of Zionism, which is settlement. And uh, his acts are treasonous. He should be put on trial and thrown into jail. In his Facebook profile picture, he's standing in front of the Dome of the Rock in occupied East Jerusalem. He has a big beard and sunglasses. Two soldiers from the Israeli occupation forces are standing behind him, for years, he's been part of a campaign to replace the Dome of the Rock, a Muslim holy site, with a Jewish temple. This is him talking about it in 2018. How do we show our faith in Hashem? How do we sanctify his name and show our faith? 
Begirush Aravim, expelling the Arabs, Bitihor Harabayit, removing the mosques from the Temple Mount. Right? If you really believe in Hashem, that's what you have to do. Today, he's still living either in Israel or in an Israeli settlement. The other guy, Keith Fuchs, the one who spent time in an Israeli jail in the 1970s for attacking a Palestinian's car with an AK-47, he's mostly kept a low profile. It took me quite a while uh, to find him. And in the end, I was able to find him. I figure out where he lived and, and I came to his home and knocked on his door and spoke to him. You know, oh, wow. Or, you literally went, you went and saw him face to face. I saw him face to face because, you know, it was important. No one had even knew exactly what he looks like. You know, I was able yeah. to corral from here and scrape from there a few photos where you see him in the background and his head is kind of cropped or he's wearing sunglasses, you know. Yeah. So it was important for me not only to tell the story of his voice, but also to see his face. Mm. Know what he looks like and where he lives. So David drove to a settlement near Hebron called Kiryat Arba. It's a place that's notorious for being home to some of Israel's most extreme Zionists. Yeah, look, it's scary as it's especially scary, you know, when you go into their home courts, like when you go into a settlement, you know, a small settlement in the hills and you're, there's no easy way to get out of where you are, you know. When he found what he thought was Fuchs's house, he got out of the car and knocked on the door. I presented myself as I'm considering moving to this settlement and becoming your neighbor. So can you tell me what it's like to live here? And as a result, he began talking to me and telling me about the settlement. And then I transitioned, pivoted into, so what's it like here politically, you know? And then, you know, straight up, he's like, well, I'm a Kahana man myself. And then he goes to his bookshelf and pulls out the the Kahana books that he uh, personally designed the covers of. To get his response, you know, I sent this question to him over the phone. I called him up later on and I said, Hi, it's David Sheen, journalist. And I'm asking you to comment on my report coming out that you are, according to the FBI, the assassin of Alex Soden. And he just said, you know, no, I don't have any comments. And so that was his response. In the years after her husband's murder, Helena's mum would go to an annual meeting with the FBI to discuss their progress on the case. And it was always the same thing. You know, they have no leads and there's nothing that we found out. And I guess uh, from what I'm being told, you know, now it was they waited too long or they had suspects and they let them get away. And uh, back then the forensics wasn't as good as it is now. So it's just... uh, I think his case maybe just fell through the cracks. It's still there. No progress. In private, the family struggled. They relied on Alex's income, and the ADC helped where they could, but adjusting to life without their dad was difficult. I mean, I think it forced me to grow up really fast, honestly. Um, When we first lost our dad, um, like I said, my mom really was distraught. She was very, very young. And then she had the three of us and we were five, seven, and one. And uh, I think she didn't know how to cope with it at first. Of course, there were a lot of people around her, but I think I 
forced myself to become like the older sister, make sure that my sisters were taken care of. And because my one-year-old sister was so small, if my mom wasn't around, it was me. And then my mom had to um, learn how to be by herself and take care of us and not depend on my dad. My dad actually did a lot of the grocery shopping and, you know, bill paying and uh, even the pumping gas into her car. He never let her do that. She would say she's she would just say, you know, I have no gas. Can you show me? He would tell her, no, that's that's for me to do. And he would go and make sure that her tank was always full. You know, it's, it's I guess, a, a learning experience for all of us. But my mom was amazing, and she raised us, and we're all grown. And uh, we, we still think about my dad uh, every year on his anniversary of his passing. My mom will go, and she goes throughout the year. Um, I cannot, my sisters and I cannot go to his burial site, unfortunately. That's something I can't do. In 1994, a statue was built outside the Santa Ana Library in memory of Alex Alde. It shows him wearing a kefaya draped over his shoulders, with a dove of peace in one hand and a book in the other. At an event to unveil the statue, Khalil Bendib, the artist who designed it, said that it had been a cathartic experience, a way of coming to terms with our pain and tragic loss. But the harassment didn't stop. Over the next three years, the statue was vandalised twice. Nobody was arrested in connection with that. Uh, The dove was broken off. It's red paint been thrown on it. Um, It gets cleaned up. They'll come back and do it again. They just have so much hate that they think vandalising the statue is okay. It it's not. I wondered, like, when you talk, come out and talk um, about your dad. I wondered if you worry for your own safety. All the time, all the time. I'm afraid that somebody's not going to like what I say, and if I say something wrong, that they're going to come after me or my family. When I asked retired Lieutenant Hugh Mooney if he thinks anybody will ever face justice for Alex Alde's murder, he wasn't hopeful. Will justice ever be done? No. You know, there'll never be a prosecution, in my opinion. You know, the suspects or the perpetrators will die of old age. But his legacy isn't forgotten. Every year, the ADC still holds an annual banquet in honour of him. And last year, Palestinian-American Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib paid tribute to Alex on the Congress floor. Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans are still here, loud and proud, speaking truth to power and carrying on Alex's fight in his memory. Our politics of love are the only response. Those who support oppressive policies in Palestine that murdered Alex and those who continue to fear monger and whip up hate against us to this day will not win. We will never give up, Alex. I am proud to be here because of you. Thank you and I yield back. At home, the Alde family still remember their husband, father, and now grandfather in small ways. The pictures around the house, or picking berries from the same bush that they used to when they were kids, or in making his favorite dinner every year around his birthday. Yeah, we call it mlukhiye. That's the kids' favorite food, yeah. (laughs) We go through the hassle of picking each one of those leaves every year around this time just for them. So yeah, we do that. And then his dessert... It's phyllo pastry with like a uh, cream custard on the inside, and then you bake it 
so that it's crispy and then pour like a simple syrup on top of it. This one is called Warbat. So, I mean, when I do that, that's, that kind of reminds me of my dad. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and edited by me, Dana Balut. Fact-checking by Dina Sabri and sound design and mixing by Mohamed Khrezat. Our team includes Zena Duidar, Nadine Shakir, and Finbar Anderson. Thank you to Helena O'Day for sharing her family story with us, and to David Sheen for all of his incredible reporting. You can find him at davidsheen.com, and I do recommend reading his deep dive for The Intercept. It's called Decades After a Palestinian-American Activist Was Assassinated in California, Two Suspects in His Killing Are Living Openly in Israel. Thank you also to Reverend Daryl Myers and to Hugh Mooney for speaking to me for the episode, and also to Will Humans at the Arab American TV Archive for his help sourcing archival material. For more on Alex Alday and for updates on the ongoing search for justice, you can read the work of the journalist Gabriel Sanraman at the LA Times. He's been covering this story for years. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Take care. <laughs>